You ever heard anybody say to you this, who do you think you are? Anyone ever said that? Usually it's not a very positive thing, is it? Especially when they say it like that. Who do you think you are? In fact, Alison used to say to me that when she was a kid and her dad used to say, who do you think you are? She used to go, Alison West, 102 Rowwood Drive, like that, you know what I mean? Or, don't tell her I've talked now. She's all right, I asked her. But who do you think you are is the title of our series that we're looking at. And it's really important because this all kicks into the issue of identity. Do we know who we are? Who do you think you are? The Bible says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Here's a challenge, alright, and you need to listen and concentrate right from the word go this morning, okay? We believe and act not in accordance with the truth, but in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. Sounds a bit deep, that, doesn't it? Let me say it again. We believe and act not in accordance with the truth, but in the truth as we perceive it to be. You with me? What we do is we build up truth over our lives through the things that people have said, through the experiences that we've had, and, it, and it's called in psychological terms self-talk, and the self-talk that grows up inside of us imprints deep in our subconscious our definition of the truth. We do not believe and act in accordance with the truth. We believe and act in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. So, some people will look in the mirror and they will think that they're incredibly overweight when actually they're incredibly underweight. The truth is one thing, but the truth as you perceive it to be is a whole different deal. I remember being involved with somebody many years ago and visiting them in the hospital because the, the weight was such an issue that they had to go to hospital. I remember having conversations and the person would look in front of a mirror and what they do in these things, you look in front of a mirror, um, just perhaps in your underwear, and they say, look in the mirror, now tell me where your hips are. And she would say, they're here. And she was five and a half stone. But she, it, the truth in her head is that this is where my hips are. Because you don't act and behave in accordance with the truth, the objective truth. We act and behave in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. That's why some people repeat the same cycle of relationship, behaviour and breakdown time after time after time. Because inside them, there is a subconscious imprinted truth and they act and behave out of the truth as they perceive it to be. It's why today, a little bit later, okay, a lot later, hours later, I'm going to tell you that God loves you. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to describe to you how much God loves you. I'm going to use language that Paul uses to describe how much God loves you. And some of you will never, ever really believe it. Because deep in your psyche, Paul calls it the inner man, the inner woman, in your being, there's a truth that you have got imprinted in there that nobody, especially God, could ever really love you in the ways that I describe. You see, what we need to do is we need to change the self-talk and we need to change the truth that we built up inside of us and replace it with the truth as God defines it, isn't it? So the truth will set you free. The problem is, it has to be God's truth that sets us free. We believe and act in accordance with the truth as we perceive it, not as it necessarily really is. And in case you think this is psychobabble, the Bible says, as a man thinks, so he is. Here's a question. If you had a friend that talked to you like you talk to yourself, would you want to be with them? We all have self-talk, don't we? 
We all have the way that we talk to ourselves about ourselves, about our world, about our life, about other people. If you had a friend who talked to you in the way that you talked to you, would you actually want to be with them? But is it possible to let another troop shape and influence you to believe and behave in a totally different way? Let me give you a story. This is a story I heard this week. Fabulous story. It's a guy called Cliff Young. He's Australian. He's 61 and he's a sheep farmer. And in Australia, there's a really famous race that goes from Sydney to Melbourne. It's around 600 miles long. And Sydney, uh, Cliff Young, okay, 61-year-old sheep farmer, decided to enter the race. This is a true story. You can Google it. I've Googled it to check it all out before I share it with you this morning. And he pitches up at this race, and there's thousands and thousands of runners, and they've all come from all different backgrounds, and they're all in all the running gear. Some of them are backed by companies like Nike, okay? He turns up as a 61-year-old sheep farmer in his overalls with his galoshes over his work boots. And he stands at the line, ready to run this 600-mile race. It's days and days that they have to run, okay? It's not like a normal marathon. It's 600 miles. And they look and they say, how on earth did you get into training for this? I mean, how can you do this? And he said, you don't understand. I live on a sheep farm. It's thousands of acres. I chase the sheep all day long. That's how I get fit. And he looks around and they're all backed by all these big companies like Nike and Adidas. He's backed by his 81-year-old mother who's turned up with him, all right? Now, this is what happens. The race goes off. He won the race. He won the race and he beat the record by nine hours. In work boots and galoshes and overalls, this is how he did it. All the other runners knew the truth. And the truth is, you run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. You run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. You run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. The problem with Cliff Young, he didn't know the truth. And he just kept running and kept running. And he beat the record by nine hours. Isn't that incredible? You see, the truth, the truth that set him free wasn't the truth that everyone else lived by. They said, no, the only way you can do this is to run for 18 hours and sleep for six. Run for 18 and sleep for six. But nobody had told him that. And so he ran slower than everyone else, but he just kept on running. And he won the race. Isn't that amazing? And I wonder this morning, how many of us have truths that have kept us from running the race that God has marked out for us. We've allowed these things to become imprinted deep in our psyche. And no matter what happens, nothing shifts the truth as we perceive it to be. And this morning, I want to really pray and hope that the Word of God is the truth that sets you free. And for some of you, that will mean that your truth that has become imprinted within you will have to change. It will have to change. If it doesn't change, nothing will change. You see, we have something inside of us that kind of aligns our life to the truth as we perceive it to be. And we gather evidence to prove that. And we have to change the truth that we are telling ourselves that's imprinted deep within our being. And we're going to look uh, in the book of Ephesians, if you've got that. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul. We're looking in this series called Who Do You Think You Are? And just to give you a little background in case you haven't been here, the Apostle Paul is in prison uh, in Rome in about AD 60-61. He writes his letter to the church at Ephesus and to the surrounding believers and churches around there. And, and in chapter 1, he talks about the unsearchable riches and, and this is incredible chapter about you know, what Christ has done for you. Last week, Dan did an awesome job at explaining to us just how low we were, how high we are. Do you remember that? Death Valley right to the top of the mountain. Incredible. And then in chapter 3, it kind of begins to transition because he is going to talk about who we are in God, but he's going to begin to talk about who we are with each other as well. And we're going to look at that this morning. And Paul was crystal clear on the truth of his identity. 
And deep inside of him, he knew who he was and he lived out of that. He acted and he behaved out of the truth as he saw it. And he makes three clear statements about his identity, which I want to look at with you this morning. The first one is he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 1. You can miss over this. You can pass over this so quickly and you miss it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, the truth, right? The truth was he was a prisoner of Nero. He was a prisoner of Rome, wasn't he? And he could have said it. I'm a prisoner. Like If we were in prison, we're, we're detained at Her Majesty's pleasure is what we say, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? But he says, no, I'm not first and foremost a prisoner of Rome, even though I'm in a Roman prison. First and foremost, I'm a prisoner of Christ. My identity is not in my circumstances. My identity is in my relationship with Christ. I'm not first and foremost a prisoner of Nero or Rome. I'm first and foremost a prisoner of Christ. That's really, really important. You see, Paul didn't define himself by all of those external circumstances. The chains, the walls, the dark, the damp, the cold. They didn't determine who he was. They determined where he was situationally, but they didn't determine who he was. That was his relationship with Christ. And yes, he's a prisoner to Nero. That's truth. But a greater truth is that he belongs to Christ. And you see, in the time Paul was writing, and this is really important, there was a phrase that went around the Roman world, Caesar is Lord. And see, the Christians came along and said, mm, no, he ain't. No, he ain't. That's the truth, small truth, but the big truth is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God has given him the name that is above every other name, that at his name every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's Roman language. Caesar is Lord. No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. That's the truth that defines him. And we are not defined by our circumstances. Now what's true for you is not necessarily the truth. Are you, are you with me in this? Unemployed, single, divorced, sick. All of these things are true, but they're not the sum definition of who you are. They do not need to be the prison that constrains you. And, and, and I love this, he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now that could come over like, and it's your fault I'm here, but that's not what he means. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ, for the sake of you. That is phenomenal. See, Paul's truth, Paul's self-talk, if you like, is that life is more than what happens to him. That what happens to me can be used by God for a greater purpose than me. So this prison that I'm in, can be used in order to help you. Gentiles. Gentiles means non-Jews. All those people in the world that were non-Jews. This is phenomenal to me. Isn't it exciting? So he's in a prison and he's an apostle and he's like a go-getter action man, Indiana Jones type character and he's going nowhere. But rather than say, do you know what? I am in a prison and I don't deserve it and why? And look at how effective I could be. Look at how powerful I could be. He says, do you know what? I'm a prisoner of Christ. I don't know why I'm here. I don't understand why I'm here. But I belong to Christ more than anything. And there's a reason and there's something going to happen out of this for the sake of other people. And so in the book of Philippians, he, you know, which is another letter that he writes from uh, prison, he says, these chains have served to advance the gospel. I don't know how, but they have. And you might think, how on earth does that work? Let me explain it to you, Dan. I'm going to use you again. He was in, under house arrest, but he was still in a prison, okay? And every day, Paul, imagine I'm Paul, would be joined by a Roman soldier. Big, ugly brute of a bloke. 
That would be you. <laughs> You've got it, yeah. And, and he would be chained probably by the ankle to this guy, all right? Now, I'm chained to him, okay? And every six hours, he, we unchain, he goes off shift, and another guy comes on. Now, it'd be very easy for me as Paul to say, God, why on earth have you put me here in this prison? Do you know what I mean? Now, remember that what God had put in the heart of Paul was that he would go to Rome. He was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles and he was going to go to Rome. And he went and he ended up shipwrecked, do you remember, in the island of Malta. And he ended up finally being in Rome, but then he was in prison. Very easy to say, how am I ended up here? Do you know what I mean? What on earth? How on earth can I cause the advancement of the gospel chained in prison to a big ugly bloke like this? But every six hours, this big ugly bloke was replaced by another big ugly bloke. And here's the thing. My question is this, who was chained to who? Who was chained to who? Because the reality is, while he's here chained to me, six hours, he's hearing everything that I'm saying. And as I'm writing all these letters to all these people, and as I'm praying, and as I'm sharing, this bloke is chained to this bloke, not the other way around. Isn't it? Thanks, Dan. And that's why at the end of the book of Philippians, it's just an incredible thing, and you miss it. The end of Philippians, it says, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. You see, out of that prison, Roman soldiers met Christ. And out of that prison, the faith grew. Because he was clear on his idea. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that unbelievable? You see, he could have said, I'm a prisoner of Rome and I don't deserve it. But he said, no, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And it's for the sake of you Gentiles. What's happened to me, I don't understand it. I don't necessarily like it. But what's happened to me, if I'm right on the truth, if the truth within me is right then this can be used for your purposes, God. We had, um, had a couple of dinner uh, evenings with different friends recently, which has been great. We haven't done that for a long time, because many of you know, because of our personal circumstances. But we were with some friends recently who have been through incredible trauma and tragedy in their life, like most of us have never experienced. But do you know what? As I sat there with dinner, just out saying, but do you know what? Out of what's happened to you, look at the people you've been able to help and influence through that. You've been able to sit in situations with people who've been through similar trauma and you've been able to take the experiences that you've had and how God has brought you out of that and use that. It never makes up for that. It ne- you, you wouldn't change all of that. Do you not understand what I'm saying? I'm not being trivial here. But out of that experience, when you're clear on your identity, you know that, do you know what? I don't understand why this has happened, but it could be for the purpose and the help of God and other people. And that's a phenomenal thing. We sat with some other friends who were in a similar circumstance with us in our situation and we just looked at each other across the dinner table and said, if it wasn't for this circumstance, we'd have never met. They've met Christ through this circumstance as well. And we've become great friends. And if it wasn't for our difficult prison circumstance, we'd have never have met. Then I had a phone call this week from a woman that I don't know, but somebody who I do know has told her about our situation with our son, with going into residential care, and she's in a similar situation. They're just a little bit, their kid is a little bit younger and saying, can you help me? Can you talk to me? What happened? What did you do? Able just to spend time on the phone just talking. And that doesn't make up for any of the circumstances we go through, but if you're clear on your identity, what happens to you in your life is not just all about that. But there is something that God can do and he can take that and he can use it for his glory and for the Gentiles, for other people. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Paul says in just in one verse. So where's your circumstances right now? Where's your, what's your self-talk right now? 
Oh, I'm in this prison and, you know, I want to get out. And, and, you know, God, why did you put me this and all that? Or I say, God, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm in this prison. I don't understand why. don't necessarily like it. But out of this situation, could you do something for the sake of other people? We could stop there, couldn't we? That's amazing. But then he goes on and he also declares something else in terms of his identity. In verse 7 and 8, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He declares his identity as being a servant of the gospel of Christ. He's not just a prisoner, but he's a servant of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word there for servant, diakonos, it's where we get the word deacon. It's, it means a gift of God's grace which enables him to serve. He doesn't look at service as something he chooses to do. He says this is a gift of God by God's grace. It's part of the calling of being a believer. We use the term here volunteers. We use it because it's the best one we can think of. It's not really accurate because if you're called to be a believer of Christ, servanthood is part of the deal. It's part of the deal. It's what you're called to do. It's what you're enabled to do by the gifting of God's grace. Now listen to how he views himself. The name Paul in Latin means little. Now you need to know Paul, historians, Christian and non-Christian, view Paul as being one of the most brainy, intelligent people that has ever lived on planet earth. He's got like an IQ of a gazillion. Do you know what I mean? And he's just an incredibly intelligent man. And yet this is how he views himself. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, it says, I'm the least of the apostles. Here in Ephesians 3 verse 8, he's got even worse. He's less than the least. He's like the leastest. East. He's less than the least. Towards the end of his life, in the book of Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. This is Paul, who's the Pharisee of Pharisees, who's the most intelligent, awesome, incredible bloke. But how he views himself is, do you know what? I'm little. I'm the least. That's not reversed humility and all that kind of stuff. That's genuine acknowledgement of who is great and who's not. It's that sense of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease so that he would increase. And I'll tell you what, we don't live in that kind of culture, do we? We live in the culture where it's all about how great I am. And a humanistic background to that says how great and how wonderful and how fantastic that we really are. Now I understand the concept of that. We have to be really careful when we look at that. It comes from a humanistic model, not a theological, biblical worldview. God says we are great, but not because we're great, but because he has made us great. And because God has put truth within us. We have to be really clear about that. You see, when we come to serve... Richard Foster is a a guy that wrote a book called The Celebration of the Disciplines. He said this, self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish between small and large. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. True service rests contented in hiddenness. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is free of the need to calculate results. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there's a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. True service is lifestyle. And Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ and I'm a servant of the gospel of Christ. Part of my calling of who I am. How do you view servanthood? How do you view your calling? Is there an excitement to say, God, you've called me. I can serve other people. I can live a life of service. Or are we so affected by our culture 
that it is all about us and all about our happiness and our contentment and our identity. Toscanini was a world famous uh, musician and conductor. Once had an orchestra around him and they were playing Beethoven music and as they were playing the music they got to the end of the one thing. All the, all the, the crowd were applauding and he whispered to the orchestra, I'm nothing, you're nothing, Beethoven is everything. It's great theology. It's all about God, isn't it? It's all about God. And God's great. I want to live like that. I want to live like that. Not in reverse humility, but in the sense of, do you know what? It's all about you, God. You're everything. You're everything. And then he goes on, and this is just rock, rock my world when I, when I looked at this, because I've never seen this. Let, let's, let me go back to, to verse 3. Verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. The third thing that Paul says about himself is that he is an administrator of the mystery of Christ. You have to stick with me now, okay? An administrator of the mystery of Christ. And he says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. There's a mystery here, Greek word mysterion, okay? There's a mystery that nobody else knew, but now has been revealed to me. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul's saying. This is really exciting, honestly. I'm excited, okay? I may be the only one, but I am. There's a mystery that nobody else knew about, but that has been revealed. Who can keep a secret? Who loves secrets? <laughs> and you see, this word mysterion, mystery, is not like eerie ooh, type of thing. It literally means a sacred secret. And it doesn't mean a mystery that nobody else knows. Somebody else knows it, but the problem is it hasn't been revealed. If you know it, you know it. If you don't know it, you ain't got a clue. It's a mystery to it. Everything like that. I um, saw something this week, and now if you've seen this, all right, please don't ruin the whole thing, all right, for me. But here's, here's a mystery. Can you see that? We need to get it up on the screen, please. Great. If you can just... That's the one. So, there are dots here. There's a one and a two, A, B, C, D. What you have to do is you have to join them up in pairs. You have to connect one and two, A and C, and B and D. You have to connect them up, okay? Using three lines... The only rules are the lines can't cross and you can't go outside of the box. Has anyone seen this? Some of you have and you're going to just like get up there and do it. Okay, does anybody want to have a go at it? So it is possible to be done, okay? You have three lines, they can't cross and you can't go outside the box. You've got to connect one and two, A and C and B and D. Anyone want to have a go? Come on. Have you seen it before, Tom? I haven't, but I think I've worked out how to do it. Go on then. If you've seen it before, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Have you all, the rest of you have all worked it out. It's easy, isn't it? You've got it, haven't you? A and C, B and D, and 1 and 2. That is correct. That is the most. That is correct. <laughs> now I, I guarantee, because I was at a thing this week with Dan, and we were doing, and none of us could do it, could we? None of us. You're wired slightly differently, Tom. 
Now, here's the thing. I, none of you thought like that, did you? Okay. You were all thinking, that goes through there. But then how does that go through there without crossing the line, weren't you? Because we're conditioned. See, Tom, Tom is in on the secret. That's what that's about. See, it's, it's revealed to him. The rest of us could like never see it. So it's not like it's a mystery that nobody knows. It's a mystery that is there. And once you're in on it, it's easy, isn't it? But because we are conditioned to think certain ways, what will happen is that we'll always think in straight lines or in between, and we will never, ever do it. But all of a sudden, a really simple solution comes. And, that, and when Paul comes to this point and he says, this mystery has been revealed to me. It's not like it was a, a mystery that nobody knew. It was always there, but that at this point in time, God revealed it. God revealed it. And let me just give you a breakaway, deeper moment, okay? If you want to go a little deeper. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here's the thought. Everything good is created by God. Would you agree? Therefore, everything good that materialises on the earth materialises as it's revealed by God. See, we think, man, aren't we clever? Because we've discovered all these scientific things and medicines and travel. We haven't discovered them as if they didn't exist. They've just been revealed by God. And we've discovered them at that point. But they were always there, weren't they? See, God created them. We just discovered them. And you see, what Paul does is he's in this cell and he's chained to this big, ugly Roman guard. And he says, you know what? I'm a prisoner of Christ, not of Rome. And I'm here for the sake of you Gentiles. And I'm a servant, not just as a volunteer, but as a calling. And he says, and then I'm an administrator. And that word administrator is where we get the word economy from. And it means like the rule of law. And it means, it's kind of like the way that it's going to be done. And I'm an administrator of the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the mystery? Is the mystery that he's talking about Christ? Is that the, that the thing that's not been revealed? Well, that's clearly not true because people knew about Christ, the Messiah, right through the Old Testament. I'm going to read something to you that will blow your socks off, okay? Every book of the Old Testament, this is deep, we're trying to go deeper in this series. I'm going to go through every book of the Old Testament now for you, okay? And every book of the Old Testament points to Christ. In Genesis, he's the ram provided by God so that Isaac would escape. In Exodus, he's the manna from heaven to feed a hungry people. In Leviticus, he's the scapegoat sacrificed for the nation's sins. In Numbers, he's the rock promised to provide water with only a word. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet who must be heard. In Joshua, he's the man with the drawn sword. In Judges, he's the judge who gives complete deliverance. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. We can go on and on and on. In every book of the Old Testament, Christ is revealed. That's not the mystery. That's not the mystery of Christ that he's talking about here. What's this mystery of Christ? Here it is. Here it is in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. Verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery that nobody saw coming was the church. I'm obviously much more excited than you are. Because you see, everybody knew that Christ was coming. That there was a Messiah anyway, even if they didn't say it was Christ. They knew there was a Messiah coming. They never ever knew about the church. Read it in the Old Testament. Read it in the Old Testament. It's not there. 
Not in that way. They never knew it. Paul never saw it coming. The Gentiles never saw it coming. That what that we could be included with Israel, that we could share in the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what Paul says. They never saw that coming. The Jews never saw it coming because Gentiles were dogs. That's how they referred to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So they never saw it coming. And Paul says, here's the revelation of Christ. Reveal to me that God's plan for planet Earth, God's revelation for planet Earth, is that there would be one body, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, all together as the body of Christ, as the revelation of God on the earth. Isn't that phenomenal? His intent is that now, through the church, the manifold, the many-coloured wisdom of God would be made known. I think that's phenomenal. Phenomenal. And he says, and, 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 and nobody saw it. Here's, here's the thing. Not even the angels knew it. See, angels are created beings. They're not omniscient, all-knowing. They never saw it coming neither. That's what he says. It's revealed to the principalities and the powers. They never saw What? Never saw this? And you know what? If they never saw it, there's one specific angel that never saw it coming neither. Satan. Mind-blowing, isn't it? Satan knew about Christ, the Messiah, because he reads the Old Testament. He knew that. He knew where, why he would come, where he would come, when he would come, where he'd be born, all that. He never knew about the church. No way. Now what he did know, he could see unbelieving Jews reject the Messiah. He could see believing Gentiles accept the Messiah. He never could see both together. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, black and white, rich and poor, together in one community with Christ as their king. Isn't that phenomenal? And this is the revelation. See, this is why we don't know who we are. Next week, Dan's going to take this thought on, looking at the church. See, Paul starts from, who am I in Christ? But then he says, it's not just about who am I, it's who are we? Who are we? Because we are the revelation of God on the earth. Did you know that? You might not think much about that, but we are the, re we are the mystery of Christ. The revelation of Christ on the earth. And it says in verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That word manifold means many coloured. It's like an embroidered pattern. Many coloured. Variants, variegate, variegated it means. Many coloured, just various forms and shapes and sizes all together. Cohesive, expressing the revelation of who God is. It's who God is, isn't it? It's what I love about the church. There isn't any other reason why this group of people would be together. We're different social status, we're different eco economic status, we're different backgrounds. But we're one in Christ, aren't we? Aren't we? I'll tell you what, we need to live up to that. We need to understand that much more. Let me just tell you briefly, we're going to take communion in, in a moment. What does that mean? That we are the revelation. We are the mystery. We are the mystery. God knew it was there all the time, but it's just been revealed. It's just been revealed. We are that mystery. What does that mean? Listen, if that's true, we better live up to that, folks. We better love one another. Because Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. There's nothing else on planet earth that brings together people so different. And to have that level of love and relationship and community. We shouldn't love one another. Naturally, that's the truth. Don't love them. They're not like us. But we have a different truth, don't we? We're not just people, we're brothers and sisters. That means that we love one another. It means that we are the first 
to walk across a room. That we are the first to stretch out a hand across a divide or a barrier. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart that there are still racial barriers within us as believers. Within me as a believer. I know I am. I, I felt it this week. And I was on this training course. I haven't told Dan about this. But there was about 12 of us at this course. And one of the guys was French. And as we sat there going through this experience that we went through and we, and we were talking about all different kinds of stuff and we were there for two days and God suddenly reminded me about an instance that I had when we went as a family to France. And Simeon, is, you know, was, it was a big trip for us to take Simeon with his needs and we, was, we were really badly treated. And we took him to Euro Disney and we were very, very badly treated uh, th- for his disability and it really hurt us. And as I, as I listened to this French guy, I realised that inside me, there was a truth that had formed about French people. Do you know what I mean? And we ain't very popular with the French people or vice versa. But I realised that inside me, there was a truth that was formed that I've told myself French people are like that. And it had built up and built up and built up. And then as, I, as I'm listening to him speak, and then as I chatted to him, it's like God hit me. I thought, you're prejudiced. You have built up a barrier towards French people because of that traumatic experience that you went through. I thought, dear God, you're right. And I wonder how many of us have got other things inside of us, deep truths in our psyche. And we should be the people that stretch across barriers and divides, shouldn't we? When was the last time you had someone from church to your house for dinner who's not from your ethnic background? Oh, I'm not racist. When was the last time then? When was the last time? Because we have to be a church that lives up to who we are. The mystery of Christ revealed, don't we? That we walk across the room. That we cross barriers. We are the sacred secret. The mystery that has been revealed. And it's all happened because of the cross. Isn't that phenomenal? You see, the Bible says that it was at the cross where Jesus broke all the barriers. As Dan described so well last week, where he tore down the veil in the temple, allowed us access, Jews and Gentiles, knocked all these rubbish walls and barriers down. It's all open for everyone. And it's at the cross. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. I want you to come back with me, okay, a couple of thousand years. I want you to imagine in that prison there, change of the God, that Paul's written all this, and he's written about being a prisoner of Christ, and he's written about a servant, and then he's written about this mystery. Of you know, the mystery of Christ revealed, and it's us, it's Jews and Gentiles, it's one body. And, and, and then it, it pushes back. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Then he says, This for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He drops to his knees, and you think, Oh, that's no big deal. That's a big deal. He's a Pharisee, never pray on your knees, you always pray standing up. The only ever when you go on your knees as a Jew, as a Pharisee, is when there's intense emotion. You passionately want to pray this. And so he drops to his knees and he says, And I pray before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth deprives, derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, and he's praying this to us now, to us now. I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, in the inner man, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell, the word dwell means moves in and feels at home. That's what it means. Not that Christ is a visitor, but Christ moves in, feels at home. He dwells. He dwells in your hearts 
through faith. And then he says, and then I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Rooted is an agricultural word. It means planted, deep planted roots right into the ground. Established is an architectural word. It means foundations that are laid. So Paul says, I want to pray that you are rooted deep into the soil. That you've got strong foundations in love. And you, and this is it, this is unbelievable. You may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And the guy saying that is a guy with an IQ of a gazillion. And he's saying, you know what, with all the knowledge in the world, you've got to know God loves you. The height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love. How do you define that? You can't really, can you? It's a four-dimensional love it's talking about, isn't it? Let me just say a few things. Higher than the heavens, deeper than hell, longer than the earth, broader than the sea. The breadth means it includes every person. The length is the length to which God would go. The depth is to how far Christ went down. The height that He will still love us in heaven. And He says, I want to pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Not just in here, but in here. The way this is written in the original language is, a, is, is incredibly passionate. It's incredibly emotive. It's, it's about, Paul is saying, knowledge and experience have got to come together. You know, you know you're not just got to know it, you've got to feel it, you've got to understand it, you've got to receive it, it's got to come together. You know, we sometimes get it wrong there, don't we? Many Christians feel a lot, but don't know a lot. Many know a lot, but don't feel a lot. Paul is saying, listen, I want you to do both. It's got to come together. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician. A lot of French this morning. A French mathematician. Incredibly intelligent. He, it was hundreds of years ago. He laid the, the laws for probability and statistics. And he writes in his diaries about one night. And if you've ever read it, you should read it. Google it. Blaise Pascal fire and you'll get it. And in his diary, it says it was 10.30 at night. Oh, the joy. Oh, the emotion. This is this incredibly intelligent, rational, logical guy. He says, all this emotion just swept over me. I realised God loved me. Then he says, fire, joy, fire. And it's like all random. He just says, this is, incre this is incredible. Then at the end he says, fire, fire, fire. Because like emotion and fire and passion filled his life as he knew that God loved him. Paul says, I want to pray that for you. And I want to pray that for you this morning as well. I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that God loves you. Not just in here, but deep in your psyche. The truth. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And then he says, And to know this love, the surpassing knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the person next to you. No, it doesn't say that. It says, You may be filled to the measure of all the fullness in God. So this is what we do. We think, Am I filled? Well, I'm bit better than Dan, isn't I? You know, I'm, I'm as good as Dan. I've got, I've got as much of God as Dan, or, you know, I'm not far off Janet. And we compare ourselves to one another, and Paul says, I don't want you to be filled compared to everybody else, to the measure of the fullness of God. How much do we need? There's more, isn't there? He says, I want to pray that you'll know this love, and you'll be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's so much more for us to know. One final thing. There's so much. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced that Paul was convinced that you will never experience the fullness of God's love outside of community, outside of the church, outside of being in relationship with one another. And Paul says, I want you to know this love. And if you know this love, this love, this truth will set you free.